it's great that publishing companies are taking feedback from the actual users, the evaluators of the test, and integrating that into plans for updating the tests. That's a huge part of the process. My position is not customer facing, but with that said, my group does reach out every so often to conduct focus groups. And really that's the most valuable information, the people who are actually using it on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. This is Enriching Education, the show for educators and evaluators who are striving to enrich the lives of each unique student. Brought to you by Riverside Insights. Every test has a hidden life. For most of us, we simply order a test and wait for it to show up on our desk. Although we typically only see these two points in a test life cycle, there is so much more in between. That's exactly why we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Eric Snader, Director of Clinical Content Development at Riverside Insights, to this episode. In today's conversation with Dr. Tammy Stevens, Eric shares what happens before we even order a test. We'll explore the collaborative nature of test development, the significance of customer feedback, and the rigorous process of collecting normative data to create fair and effective educational assessments. All right. Hi, Dr. Snyder. Thank you for joining us today. We're so excited to have you here to share some of your expertise with us. Wanted to start off with having you share a little bit about your background and talk about how you got into test development. Sure. Well, Tammy, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this. So as you said, my name is Eric Snyder and working from back to front, I went to graduate school and earned a PsyD in school clinical child psychology, really with the focus or the idea that I would work as a school psychologist my whole career. And I did work in the New Jersey school systems for about 13 years as a school psychologist, administering tests, scoring tests, writing reports, doing counseling, et cetera. And then at some point about 12 years ago, moved to Texas, where I worked for a year as a school psychologist, and then transitioned to working for a publishing company. Started off in product management, where I was managing the clinical products, and then moved over to clinical development. In the last 11 years or so, I've been working as a director in the capacity of, of, of development for clinical products, everything from early childhood to the entire age range. So that's kind of a brief summary. In addition, I've also taught at the undergraduate and graduate level at two different universities, one in New Jersey, one in Texas. Very exciting. Interesting for our listeners who are educators or evaluators to know that there's other options out there for you as you move through your profession. Definitely. I know today we're going to be talking about test development, and a lot of our listeners probably learned a little bit about test development in their courses at the university, but we've not really had a chance to see behind the curtain what goes on with test development. So can you talk a little bit about how often tests are revised? Definitely. First, I want to mention that I'm really excited about this topic because probably similar to you, when I worked as a school psychologist, I would eagerly await those catalogs that would come (laughs) to us. I think now it's mostly, if not all online, 
digital, but I would look through the catalogs as if it was a holiday gift catalog <laughs> and then check off the ones, the tests that I wanted to purchase. I would let the secretary know they would fill out the purchase order. And then miraculously, weeks or months later, the test would show up at the office. We'd open them, we'd go through the materials, et cetera. But I never really understood. I never knew what happened between ordering the test and actually receiving. And then every now and then we'd get a note from the publisher. Maybe there was an updated material. There was a manipulative that had to be replaced or something to that effect. And I just never gave it much thought that there's actually a company, many companies who publish these tests. So that's why I'm excited about this topic today, because I think it gives people an insight into what the other side of the business is like, not just the administration and scoring, but the actual creation. But to answer your question, it's different for every test, but usually tests are revised, updated every 10 years or so. That's usually the idea. Is there a reason for that, for them to be updated every 10, 10 years? There are several reasons, one of which is that the norms need to be updated. So if you look at the, the census data, right, if we use that as our ruler, so to speak, we know that the population demographics change or they have the potential to change. So that's one of the main reasons that you want to make sure that your norm sample accurately and appropriately represents the population at large. So that's one of the main factors. As soon as a test is published, now that I work on the company side, I know that there are a lot of customers who call us with questions and maybe some complaints, maybe some suggestions. So in that period of time that the product is on the market, we get a lot of feedback from customers. Some of it might have to do with administration questions or concerns or scoring questions or concerns. So the next version or iteration of the test, we might want to focus on shoring up the scoring procedures or the administration procedures. Also, in that period of time between a product hitting the market and then the new version hitting the market, there may be new updated research. So if you look at intelligence research, there are different theoretical orientations on which tests are based. Those have gone through revisions. If we look at early childhood education and early childhood testing, one example might be that personal social research or literature has really shifted to social emotional learning. So that's another reason. And then a reason that I would have thought about is changes in technology. So it may be as obvious as we're now using computers to administer and score tests. And it may be something not so obvious that if you look at the artwork in the test, there may be a picture of, let's just take, for example, a telephone that's mounted on a wall with a long cord. Most kids nowadays won't necessarily recognize that. So Really, you just want to make sure that the content is updated, the demographics represent the population, and that there are any technology issues that we've integrated. Yeah, I know that one of the previous versions of our WJ was the three, and I remember there being a payphone question in there. That's funny. And I remember evaluators were like, oh, we got to get rid of this payphone question because kids don't know what a payphone is anymore. Exactly. Yeah, so I totally get that need for updating every 10 years or so. Definitely. I also think it's great that publishing companies are taking feedback from 
the actual users, the evaluators of the test, and integrating that into plans for updating the tests. That's a huge part of the process. And I do not work with customers. My position is not customer facing. But with that said, my group does reach out every so often to conduct focus groups. And really, that's the most valuable information, the people who are actually using it on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. I, I totally agree. So how long does it typically take to revise a test from start to finish? That's a great question. It really depends on the size and the scope of the project. So if it's maybe a test that just focuses on vocabulary, that might not take as long. If it's a test like, let's just say you mentioned Woodcock Johnson, that is made up of many tests, that would take a lot longer. But I guess the number I would throw out, maybe five years or so. I worked on a test of early childhood development, and that was, I think it was almost exactly a five-year cycle from the very first step of deciding that we wanted to revise the test, knowing what we wanted to do with it, reaching out to customers, et cetera, to the time we actually got it to market. I think that was about a five-year time frame. Wow. So there's a lot of work, a lot of dedication that goes into updating or revising. There is. So when customers say, you know, when are you going to get this test out? It's not an easy answer necessarily. Right. So what are some considerations when creating or revising a test? You talked about getting feedback from customers. You talked about the census and the normative sample. Anything else that you kind of top of mind you consider when revising? Definitely. So one of the first steps that we would do is, in a sense, a literature review. So with the personal social turning into social emotional learning, we would want to really see what the landscape is like. Have things changed in the areas in which we're assessing? So we would want to engage people who are experts in that field. For example, if it's early childhood development, one of the areas is motor development. And what better group to engage than occupational therapists? If it's communication, we would reach out to speech-language pathologists. So really kind of taking into account, again, any changes in technology, any changes in the research, and also politically to some degree, because if your test helps to determine eligibility for, let's say, special education or related services, we would want to make sure that the areas that need to be assessed are included in the test. So really just surveying the entire landscape out there. Absolutely. I've heard of individuals talking about a blueprint. Can you explain what that is and how that's used? Sure, sure. The blueprint of a test is similar, I think, in nature to a blueprint of a house in that when you look at it, you're seeing everything, right, as a whole. So with a test blueprint, I'm just going to use an early childhood test as an example. The blueprint really outlines what are the main areas being assessed. So going from very gross to very fine. So if we're looking at a developmental quotient, a child's overall developmental functioning, it lists that. And what are these sub areas? So is it motor? Is it communication, adaptive, et cetera? And then within those areas, what are the sub areas? So it might be expressive communication, receptive communication. And then if we drill down even further, we get a sense of what the item content might look like. So it's really a very detailed picture of the test. And we call that the blueprint. 
And if you think of it this way, the blueprint is what the contractors, in this case, the people who work in development and research, et cetera, they take that blueprint and that's what we use to build the test. So again, if we see that there's a section called receptive vocabulary, we build items that assess that construct. So it's really a very detailed way of looking at the test and how it's going to look once it's done. So I would imagine, like you said, you would start out with the review of literature and get that information. You mentioned having individuals that work with you in developing items. How are those individuals identified and how do they identify which items to include on a test? Sure. So that's an interesting process because first we have to accept that we don't know everything, right? That there are people out there who know way more than we do in their given fields. So for example, we hired for the early childhood test, we hired a small cadre of speech language pathologists. And what they did was they looked at the items within the communication area or domain and just made sure that we had the major milestones, that they were ordered in the correct order in which they develop and that we had enough content for people who, let's say, maybe are not developing in a typical fashion, maybe not neurotypical. So did we have items for pragmatic communication skills and things like that? So we hired uh, speech pathologists, occupational therapists, school psychologists to do a review of the content. And we also look sometimes to teachers because they use our tests as well and have a lot of good information about what is being taught in the schools, in the classrooms, and also what needs to be assessed and whether or not we include it. So thinking about the whole process of developing a test, what would you consider to be the most difficult part of that process? Oh, gosh, I would say everything. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. That's a really interesting question. I would say at every stage of the development process, if there's something new that's fun and challenging and difficult, it's almost like watching, the metaphor I'm thinking of right now is like watching a television show that has episodes. Every episode is different. It could build on the last one if that's the nature of the show. I mean, just doing the literature review and making sure that we're including everything we need to include, but not things that we don't. Being able to hire the right people, because we all know that if you hire a person to perform a specific task, but they don't have the right background, that becomes very tricky. Working with the different groups, if we get into that at all, research, marketing, etc. Every stage has its areas of difficulty, but if you have a good team, which I do, I'm very lucky to work with great people it works out. I would say though, to answer your question, the most difficult would be staying on schedule and within budget. I think that will be the most tricky. I can imagine that those would be the most, most difficult. What about the whole process of collecting normative data? What does that look like for a publisher? That can be a really huge endeavor. So to kind of explain And for most of you, if not all of you listening, you know that when you test someone and you get the obtained scores, you are comparing that person to other people on whom the test was standardized. So what we do is we have to collect cases in order to build those 
normative data tables. And this gets back to something you said earlier, Tammy, that there are opportunities out there for people working in the field. We hire contractors to work as examiners. And what we do is we train them on how to administer the tests for which we're collecting the data. And it might be as simple as how to administer, but you don't have to score because we'll do the scoring internally. For some projects, we also have people scoring as well as administering, but we train them. We make sure that they are of very high quality, which is interesting because for those of us who have been in the field for a long time, myself certainly included, we think that practice makes perfect, but it's really practice makes permanent. I heard someone say a long time ago, you do something the wrong way over and over, and we keep doing it the wrong way over and over. So it's interesting training people on how to implement basal and ceiling rules, for example, or having people really learn that you absolutely must follow the standardized procedures. You absolutely must read the text exactly as it's written. Getting back. So again, we train the examiners. They go out and test people. They collect the data and we take that data and we have a research group that analyzes the data. And then there's more involved, but eventually the test hits your office and we've got those normative tables or the online scoring system for you to use. But it's a very involved process. It can take upwards of a few years to complete from start to finish, from training through the end of all the, the data collection. But it's an interesting process. It also allows us to work with people who, again, are in the field, some of whom are not in the field. They've never had experience doing testing. And we get a lot of good information, a lot of good feedback from them as well. Interesting. So once the data is collected from the examiners, I know that we have to look at cases in, in relation to the census. Correct. How does that work? Is that part of the, once they get the data into the system, they start pulling out certain demographics or how does that work? Sure. So getting back to the blueprint and the project plan, we already, before we even start collecting data, we already know what demographics we are going to consider. And again, we follow the census data. So race and ethnicity, age, gender, either socioeconomic status level, or for young kids, it's maternal education level. And we know what percentage, also location in which you live, rural versus urban versus suburban. So we already know going in what percentages we need. And just to give as an example, maybe people of Hispanic or Latino background who have more than a high school education who live in urban areas. So we know what percentage of the cases need to fit that. And we make sure, and sometimes it's difficult, but we make sure to go out and collect those cases. Some of the cases are very easy to get. Some are more tricky, more challenging. But yes, so the demographics play a big role in that so that we don't have to do any reworking or major reworking after the fact. We know what percentages and how we, we have to hit those. Interesting. So you talked about item selection. One of the things I was wondering about is how do you ensure that items are not biased to certain groups? What process do you go through for that? That's a process that everyone follows because you're right. There are sometimes items that are included that may unfairly put people of a certain group at an advantage or a disadvantage. 
So what we do is we reach out to people who have expertise in a specific area. So it might mean hiring someone with a background in, let's say, diversity, equity, inclusion issues, someone who has a background in English language learners, someone who has a background as being Asian or Latino or African-American, et cetera. And what we do is we have them review the content. And from the perspective of like what I just mentioned, will any item put a group at an unfair advantage or disadvantage? Through these reviews, we've come across some information that I found really valuable and interesting that I, as a white man, would never have considered. As an example, we had an item on an early childhood test that asked the child to provide where they live. And the scoring was based on, I'm not remembering exactly, but the scoring was based on your house number, the name of the street, the city, the state, et cetera. And we had a consultant working with us who specialized in Native American backgrounds. And the feedback they gave us was that on some Native American reservations, they don't have, I believe it was street names or house numbers. So the scoring would put kids from that background at an unfair disadvantage. Other examples might be asking people about, you know, or mentioning words like driveway, or if we ask maybe like, you know, something that's characteristic of a certain group, but not other groups, we need to know that. And that's, again, through hiring people of specific backgrounds who really give us a lot of good feedback. Right. I know there was one example that I was at a presentation and they were talking about item bias and how we really have to be careful and get experts to come in and look at the items. Definitely. And one of the examples was a picture of this old farmhouse that had like high grass around it and it was like chipping paint and oh. it had a front porch and it had a couch on the front porch. And the question was, what's wrong with this picture? And for them to get it right, they had to say it was the couch on the front okay. porch. But the bias reviewer was saying, pointed out that in some parts of the country, it's not unusual to have a couch on your front porch. I know where I grew up, it wasn't unusual to have a couch. So if I were taking sure. that, I would have said something like they need to mow or bush hog or whatever. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it's just interesting how things like that can be biased if we're not careful. Exactly. And that's a great example. And we may have several people all from different backgrounds giving feedback on the same item, but from different perspectives. So at some point, it's just like, okay, maybe this item is not good at all. And <laughs> right. we get rid of it. Yeah. So that's interesting to me, the process, and that we really take time to make sure that each of those items are considered. Exactly. So, you know, with COVID and the way that COVID impacted all of us, shutting down schools and, and things like that. One of the things I was thinking about is, did the disruption in that supply chain during COVID, did it affect test development in any way? Okay, so if we were in person, I would ask the group with a show of hands, how many people had never heard of supply chain prior to COVID? <laughs> and I think that would probably be most of us. Yes, to, to answer your question, it did affect how we developed the test because we didn't have ready access to materials that may have originally come from China, let's say. So internally, we have a group, a supply chain, who works on sourcing the different materials. So it could be easel books, it could be 
paper record forms. It could be little toys, ma manipulatives that are included in, in an early childhood test. So one of the main roadblocks or hurdles during COVID was figuring out from where we could get those materials if we couldn't get them from abroad, let's say. It was just a shift in thinking. You know, you, you can't continue to go with the, the, the same go the same route when there's a disruption. So efficiencies were created in some cases, and in other cases, we were forced to pare down the use of manipulatives, which is not a bad thing necessarily, because one of the I'm thinking one of the pieces of feedback we got, and I, I assume a lot of our listeners can relate. When you're lugging around big suitcases from one school to the next, having less manipulatives is actually a good thing. Right. So there were some positives that came out of that. But yes, um, supply chain was a big uh, issue during COVID for us, for, for everyone, I bet. And I think having less manipulatives is also helpful um, where we don't have to worry about spreading the child's mouthing, you know, manipulatives and things like that. Exactly. Having to clean them. I remember going through that whole process. You know, giving feedback on, well, how do you clean these? And stuff that we never thought we would ever, like, encounter. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Including disinfectant wipes and every right. test. That's right. I remember that. Yeah, it was not right. something we thought would ever happen. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh. Um, so, you know, you've talked about it takes a lot of different people to come together, work together to create a test. You've mentioned some, you've mentioned like having educators and having specialists or individuals who are specialized in certain areas. There's been a lot of people that's involved in creating a test and you've already talked about some of those individuals and their specialties. Are there any other individuals that are included in or necessary for test development that haven't been mentioned thus far? Definitely. And that's one of the biggest, one of the biggest surprises for me, having moved from the school to the corporate sphere. So for test development, the most obvious would be people like us who have backgrounds as former clinicians, teachers, certainly, because they have a lot of background experience and knowledge in curriculum and, and standards and things like that. But then people in groups that I would not normally have thought about. So there's a huge research group. Those are the people who analyze all the data. And for the most part, they their background is having, they're working as psychometricians. So there's research. There's also at the very start of it, let's say is product management. The product managers are the ones who help build the blueprint and they own the product. So they own the product from first thought or conception all the way through the product hitting the market. And then once the product hit the mark, hits the market, thinking of the next version of it. So the product managers are the product owners. There's a project manager and all of these titles sometimes sound so very similar. The project manager is the one who manages the budget and the schedule. So they are the ones who make sure that we're on time, that we're not spending too much money. We also work with the what we call the engineering groups. So now that tests are really moving towards, if they're not already there, a digital administration. So on the computer, maybe their tablets involved. We have a whole engineering group who take our requirements and specifications and they build the tests. We also have a QA group. 
They're the ones who make sure that the tests as they're built are actually functioning the way they should be functioning. And then of course, to get the word out, we've got a marketing group, we've got a sales group. And really, if you think of this as different overlapping circles, we all work together at any given point during this project, sometimes more than others, uh, but there's always this overlap between the different groups. But there are a lot of us. It, you know, the, the old saying, it takes a village to create a test, and, and, it, and it really does. There are a lot of uh, people. And as we talked about earlier, we oftentimes will reach out to customers at different points throughout this process because we want to get feedback so that we can iterate if we're not heading in the right direction or if we are, but we want to make this an even better product. We, we certainly reach out to customers at every every point that's appropriate. Even to the point of pricing, I know that there's focus groups that occur just to get feedback on pricing options. And one of my favorite parts about going to conventions is really interfacing with the customers because that's just the most raw data to get. Like, what do you think of the test? What are some of your pain points? That when we are detached from the customers, we don't necessarily know that. But again, we try to engage the customers at every appropriate point so that we're meeting their needs in the end. I think that's great. And also, um, like you said, you know, we try to keep track of the questions that are coming into customer service about certain items. You know, we often, I know, working with some of the customer service agents, we get a lot of questions around just specific tests, like scoring of like writing samples Mm -hmm. on the WJ. It's like there's a lot of misunderstanding around do I give a block or do I give all the items? Exactly. You know, things like that. But all of that's all of that guidance is is there in the easel and also in the examiner's manual. So definitely. That hits on a point. Last year we were at a convention and my group conducted a focus group with customers asking them what would they like to see in an examiner's manual. Because we may have a formulaic way of constructing those manuals. But what we really wanted to do is create a manual that will not only teach you about the product, how to administer and score it, how to use it, and also give you a background in whatever the area it is. So if it's intelligence or early childhood development. So we got a lot of really great feedback about what should be included in a manual and what people really don't need. They don't, maybe it could be a supplement because they don't really look at. So it was great guidance we received. What about if a person, I know we get a lot of professors that that are interested in creating a test, right? They have an idea. How do they go about, like, who would they reach out to, to, to give, you know, their pitch, if you will? That's a, yeah, that's a great question. I would say, getting back to a term I used, product managers. So you easily can call a publishing company or a company and just ask them to say, hey, I'm... I've got this idea for a product, clinical, early childhood, group administered, et cetera. To whom can I pitch this idea? And my guess it would be the product management group. Because again, they're the product owners and they would be the ones to decide whether or not there's a need for it in the market and whether there's money for it and whether they would pursue that actual project. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and the insight that you provided to us. And we just appreciate you. Y'all, thanks so much. I enjoyed the talk. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Enriching Education, brought to you by Riverside Insights. For more on how you can enrich the lives of students, visit us at riversideinsights.com. Thank you.